RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Optimum Nutrition. To get a 40% discount across their entire batch-tested range, use the code RENEGADE40 at www.onacademy.co.uk forward slash elite portal. And of course, members of the Rugby Renegade online subscription program get an exclusive 50% discount plus free access to the Optimum Nutrition online nutrition course. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jim Bain and today I interview Grant Jenkins, a really experienced S&C coach um, who I've, I've followed for a long time on LinkedIn. He, he posts some really kind of thought-provoking, interesting stuff. Uh, so we'll check him out there. But of course, uh, listen to us have a chat with him now. Tons of great information. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi, Grant. Welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. It's great to have you on. Let's start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning and who you've worked with. Oh, Jamie, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for the invite. All right, how I got into strength and conditioning. Um, slightly different to maybe many strength and conditioning coaches. I, I was never, I enjoyed sport. Um, I was never going to be in an office, but I had no aspirations of being a professional athlete. It was just not a, a thing for me. Um, I picked up a number of injuries as a, as a rugby player at high school and at university. I played at um, Stellenbosch University. And so I was often on the physio table and um, kind of had an interest in that. But um, probably always wanted to work more with what I now know as apparently healthy people rather than, um, than, than the rehab side of things. Um, and yeah, so signed up uh, to a degree in South Africa. It was, back then it was human movement science. Um, and then got into an honors program, which was in South Africa is called biokinetics. Um, and I think in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, is it exercise physiology? Is that? Uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in Australia, it's called exercise physiology. Um, and moving from South Africa to Australia, I had a choice to make, continue with the rehab sort of side of things which um which is uh, what i'm really sort of trained to do um as much as the performance but back in the early 2000s i would say exercise physiology wasn't as well recognized as maybe it is now and so i thought i'll just go full-time into the performance side um and sort of started at the bottom and, and sort of worked my way up over the time um and to answer the last part of the question which is who i've worked with um I worked with, a, I think I counted the other day, it's about eight state or national sporting organizations. So Tennis Australia, Skate Australia, um, Queensland Rugby Union, um, uh, BMX Queensland, Motorcycling Queensland, Swimming Queensland, um, and, and there's, a, there's a couple others there. And I've also worked five years full-time at a, what we call a GPS school, which is a private boys-only school. Um, which where rugby is a, a big component of the of the program, probably the dominant sport in those GPS schools. Um, and then the last eight years, I've been in the private sector. So I've got my own business and uh, now work where the private sector is where the athlete or sometimes a parent pays for the um, you know for the session. Yeah, cool. And we're gonna we're gonna talk more about that private sector stuff later. But for now, let's kind of uh, sort of have a look at, at your. Your philosophy, um, or some people call it—you know—I use the term philosophy. They call it a system of improving athletic performance. How do you go about it with your athletes? Oh, okay, good question. So, a fundamental part of my program is my athletes are people first. So, that is that drives everything. I'm working with a person. Um, so, if I had to describe a paradigm that I'm using. Um, for simplicity's sake, it would be my first goal is to get the the athlete to be a healthy person. So injury-free, take care of niggles. Um, you know, we can kind of sort of touch on imbalances. If is there a big discrepancy between the force produced on the left leg and the right leg, you know, that kind of stuff. So a healthy person is the first stage. Second stage is to make them more athletic. So we call that the healthy athlete stage. 
And then the final stage is uh, where we say a healthy sports person, whatever that sport might be, BMX, mountain biking, rugby, league, whatever. Um, so three stages, healthy person, healthy athlete, healthy sports person. And um, there's basically, it's not as defined as that. It's not as black and white as that. It's fairly gray. You could um, be a healthy uh, athlete, but still be doing some, taking care of some niggles. And then within the, the, the annual cycle, and you guys can imagine like after your football season, um, you go, we go back to being a healthy athlete. So if they, you know, they've been banged up or they're starting preseason and stuff, the first goal is to let's get them healthy and moving well. And, you know, we say healthy hips, healthy athlete. And then we build through that cycle. So Jamie, if you can imagine, there's a big macro cycle taking them from those three stages, but then within a year, there's those stages sort of um, cycle through again. And then in, in a sport like football, where you're playing sort of every Saturday or every week, there's a game. Mondays is also, well, the, the early stage of the week is also um, healthy person, then healthy athlete, and then healthy sports person. So we have this sort of, it's, it's that same paradigm is on a macro level. Let's call it a meso level. And then on a weekly or micro level. Yeah, that's interesting. I like the way you've done that. Let's kind of look at each individual thing and 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 how you approach each stage of that um, that sort of system. So, your your healthy uh, person. What what are the kind of priorities in that period? Okay, so so we'll typically have um, an assessment, uh, and these assessments are they're they're not fancy at all. They they're very very basic. It's body weight stuff. Um, it might be a standard one is a triple hop. So you hop three times on the left, hop three times on the right, and you get a distance. And we look at, at that. Um, so that, there's a quantitative uh, number to that. So, you, you know, you, in your case, Jamie, you might have hopped five meters 80 on your left and six meters 10 on your right. And we'll, we'll look at that. Um, then there's also a qualitative aspect to it. So we, we train our coaches or I'm looking at where do you get your power from? Was it more plyometric or was it more strength-based? Did you get it from more your first hop or, or did you pick up distance as you, as you hopped? So um, we'll take note of that. We'll look at a vertical jump. Um, we make sure your shoulders can sort of move in all directions, so flexion, extension, all that kind of stuff. Um, hips, we look at hip range. Um, a lot of it's very, very dynamic. So um, we, we're not reliant on something that's quite of slow and, and static like the FMS. Um, there's other things that we do. So for example, getting over hurdles, getting under hurdles and a few other things. And again, it's all sports. Um, it will depend on, you know, what the athlete's sort of training for. Um, and then very basically, if I had to sum it up, I'd say that we work the, the muscles you don't see in the mirror. So if you think back to, you know, the eighties and the nineties, when gyms were all about you know, machines and quadriceps and pecs and biceps and abs, we're, probably during that phase spend more time on calves and hamstrings and glutes and lower back and posterior cuff of the shoulder would be one way of of sort of conceptualizing it um and yeah so th so that's kind of what we're doing um during that phase it's not to say that they're not squatting or deadlifting or maybe even cleaning or something it's just more what the emphasis is, is that, hey let's get you back to work moving your body really well yeah, definitely. And, and then so moving into the, the healthy athlete side of it, and I guess that is your progression into developing force and doing things like the Olympic lifts. How, how do you, um, or what do you work on now? How do you transition into that once you've got them healthy? Yeah. Um, so during that stage, uh, and again, uh, touched on this right in the beginning, is it's not clear like, hey, you've progressed, here's a certificate, you move into the next stage. It's just going to be what the emphasis is on. Um, and so during that stage we will do and it really is athletic development we talk about so we'll do running hopping skipping jumping we'll do pushing pulling climbing um, the pushing and pulling will be in a vertical and a horizontal plane plane um, we do a lot of tumbling um, so forward rolls dive rolls commando rolls back back rolls um, we try to play around with handstands and a few things like that, but uh, it just doesn't seem to work. And uh, to be honest, I think I'm just not really good at coaching those. Um, and it's just very basically, Jamie, what we, the way, again, we conceptualize it is to say, if this person had to change sports, would they physically be able to 
compete in another sport. Now, obviously, there's a technical and com tactical component to each sport, but we're saying, you know, if you're a, a tennis player, would you be able to go into play a bit of rugby um, if, if you wanted to or vice versa? So that's kind of how we approach the, the athleticism behind it. And um, so it's a whole bunch of different movements. I, I got to admit, I, I did a, um, I've got a Zoom chat thing that I did and I did it with M Michael Boyle. And over the years, he's definitely influenced me to do a lot more single leg work in that athletic development phase. Um, we still do some bilateral front squats, back squats, deadlifts, trap bar deadlifts, whatever. But um, we do a, a lot more single leg strength work um, than probably I did five years before, you know, like the first sort of 15 years of my career. Um, and we do prioritize that quite a bit. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's kind of what's covered, covering that, that aspect. It's, it's, it's very, um, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, to be honest, it's, we're doing a whole bunch of movements and we probably don't put as much emphasis on moving heavy weight um, as I did say 10 years ago um, it's more about moving moving well and, and moving quickly i suppose would be a better way of thinking about it um, and again that's not to say we don't do heavy lifts it's just the emphasis is very very small on, on the heavy stuff yeah, I, I like it i like what you said about you know that athleticism to be able to you know play other sports um, essentially we want athletes to be athletic in the general sense so obviously that can carry over to other things but then also that gives them the potential to specialize in their own sport um, and also like we said about the, the tumbling and the rolling stuff uh, that's a kind of good thing in the, in the current climate when you've got kind of people training in the social distanced um, sort of setting um, that's good ways to kind of prepare you for going into contact and things like that so some good good points there yeah 100 percent. And, and i think it's just you know everyone talks about this all the time, but our kids aren't playing in the backyard, um, you know, like they were a generation ago. Yeah. Um, and that spatial awareness is heavily affected. And, and this is very anecdotal, but we've found that as athletes can do these dive roles and commando roles and, and play around like it, it actually becomes easier to coach them in the gym with your push presses or I don't know, overhead squats or whatever. They've, they've just got, better body awareness um so you know that becomes quite a big part of the of the program and i, I just want to also clarify jamie the um what we do with athletic development also it kind of depends on the sport because the way we figure it is if you're a swimmer you are um you're spending you know some some of our swimmers are spending at different times of the year, up to 11 sessions in the water. If you look at tennis players, um, you know, a serious tennis player, even a 15, 16 year old tennis players could be spending as much as, you know, four hours a day, five hours a day on court. So we feel that they're getting enough specificity uh, through their training. So our job is to make them more athletic. And, um, and that's why we, You'll actually, if you walked into our gym on a random, off, you know, athletic development uh, session, you probably wouldn't be able to, based on that program, you probably wouldn't be able to tell which kid, which athlete is doing which sport. Um, it would be they're all developing their athleticism because they, the BMXs are spending enough time on the BMX. The, the mountain bikers are spending enough time there. The rugby players are, you know, some of these schools that we train these athletes for are, are, are doing eight sessions, nine sessions, 10 sessions a week um, in the preseason. So they're getting all that sport specific stuff um, through their sport. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. And I guess the question coming off the back of that would be, how do you sell that for want of a better term to the, to the, to the athletes and to the, the parents, if you're dealing with, with kids, um, because a lot of them want that sport specificity um, like how, how do you kind of educate them that you want to build general athleticism? hundred percent. So we have this conversation fairly frequently. And, um, so all my athletes have an initial consultation and that's where we set some ground rules, uh, from the beginning. So the, the expectation, you know, no parents allowed in the gym. Uh, we, we have a big emphasis on ownership. So if the kid forgets his shoes, it's not, it's not mom's fault, it's his fault. 
Um, we talk about all that kind of stuff, but I, I basically, it's, it's very similar to what you and I are talking about right now. Um, and um, we're going to get to this, but to, to get that sports specific program, the rule at Propel is that you have to be competing on the world stage in the open age group for you to be on a BMX or rugby program. That's the level that you need to be competing at. And I set that as a, as a, a criteria or a, a standard very early on. Um, but you're right. We get these phone calls from parents. Hey, um, can you give my son a rugby specific program? Um, I'll be honest. I, I don't mention too much of that in the, on the phone call because they're uneducated. They don't know. So I don't blame them. And then during the initial consultation, that's where I'll say, look, I understand that's what you're looking for. You think your kid is a flanker or rugby union player or a rugby league player or, you know, I don't. I just see a, a, a 12, or 15, and 18-year-old kid um, who happens to play that sport and even more so happens to play in that position. So we're not even going to talk about that. Um, we are going to talk about making them healthy, healthy person, healthy athlete. And then, and then when you know, they get signed up to play for the Reds or um, whatever, that's when we can start talking about maybe a, a sports-specific program. Yeah, that's cool. And so that's led nicely into what, what, how do you differentiate with your, or make things more sports specific? Well, here's, here's the thing, um, Jeremy, and it, basically what it comes down to is that that final phase is really where the person's earned the right to have a very individualized program. Um, and as I said, they're competing on the world stage in the open age group. So we've got a, we've got a, a young BMXer. He's a seven-time world champion, which sounds super impressive. Um, and, and it still is impressive. I'm not taking anything away from him. But he won. He's under 14. So he won the, uh, I'll get this right, under eights, nines, tens, elevens, twelves, thirteens, fourteens. So seven times. But it's all underage stuff. So he is on our athletic development. He, he's still a healthy athlete um, uh, phase of his program um and so that's when we really start looking at um you know energy system energy system specific conditioning or or those kind of movements um i'll give you one simple example is range of movement suddenly becomes very important at that at that um level so if you have a healthy um you know, you're a healthy BMX, so you, you're a healthy sports person, healthy rugby player. That's when we might get very specific in our programming to say, hey, I only want you to squat to this depth because this is the depth that you need for scrummaging strength. And we know the deeper you squat, chances are the less weight you're going to handle. So it might be, you know, 150% of your full squat, your A to G, your ass to grass, or whatever you want to call it, full squat. It might be way heavier, but it's just going to be a range that is very, very um, uh, similar to what you need in the scrum. Or using the BMXer as an example, your start position in the position that you, you're going to be in. And we're looking at those angles. That's where we start talking sports specifics. So range of movement would probably be one of the dominant factors or uh, that we're tweak and change and modify and and monitor as they are there at that level um so if, you know um, if, um our, our athletic program the healthy athlete places where typically one of the characteristics of that is we train through full range of movement and then so that range would decrease to be way more sport specific in the final phase of the program yeah, and I'm I'm guessing then, obviously you reduce range of motion on some of those key exercises, but then you still, as you kind of said, you still run through that general athleticism as well elsewhere in the programming. Hundred percent. So, yeah. it, in the short term, it could be within the warm up. So we'll say we still need you to squat. Uh, using that as an example, we'll still need you to squat full range in your warm up sets as you build to this max or you know this the weight that you program to do today. Um, or we might use it as a form of recovery. So during that time, or it might be at different phases of the year. So um, early pre-season or in the off season, we get them to come back to that. Um, uh, another example, just to clarify it is um, uh, take our, our, our BMXs when they come back from world champs. And this is the, the senior guys or senior guys and girls, they will do a lot of hamstring work 
um, after Worlds because we don't really do that in the lead up. In the six weeks leading up to World Champs, the elite guys do not really do any hamstring work. It's all very sport specific. But then we go back to the phase after Worlds, they'll have one or two weeks off. They'll start filtering back into the gym. And then that's when we'll build up their hamstrings again, knowing that um, when it comes to a World Cup or if they're going to the US or something like that, that's where they will... Um, they'll get more, more sports specific. So hundred percent correct. And my next question is, um, you know, how you deal working with developmental athletes and we've covered so much already. Um, is there anything you, you'd like to add in terms of being more specific to, to young athletes? Um, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's just summarize. I'll mentally summarize it. So the developmental, if they're competing in an age group thing, we're not even talking sports specific. We're talking about developing uh, athleticism in the most general sense we can. We're talking about using full range of movement. We're talking about trying to achieve some kind of balance. So another example is the tennis players. My elite guys, if they're competing on the tour, I don't care about left and right uh, imbalances, however you measure that or whatever that actually means. Um, you know, you look no further than Rafa Nadal's left arm to yeah. his right arm. You know, that bicep on the left arm, there's an imbalance there. But that, if that could be the cause of his success, not, not anything to worry about. Um, so the developmental athlete, we're not at that phase. We still are trying to maintain some kind of balance. So um, if you look at the program that I mentioned before, single leg work, um, we will typically favor a dumbbell over a barbell where possible. So, you know, dumbbell, if we're going to do bench press, it's probably most of it's going to be dumbbell bench press over barbell bench press. Um, and, and again, um, Jamie, just so the listeners are clear, it doesn't mean it's either or. A lot of the stuff might be, hey, we'll bench twice a week, um, but one, one set will, uh, one day will be dumbbell work and one day will be barbell work or even on the barbell work you might do your warm-up sets with the dumbbells um, so we're just looking at ways to minimize imbalances at that stage um, and make sure that you know that's there um, it, it's more generic so you'll you'll look at um, even though we know that bmx is especially the girls glute strength is really important we'll still do hamstring and quad and calf stuff that um, is not specific to the sport but again it's that general thing um yeah i think i think that would be fundamentally what we'd be looking at at a, at a you know a developmental stage yeah. yeah that's cool sounds good and you mentioned obviously emphasis on single leg uh, exercise and mike ball obviously you know he's a, a massive fan of the, the bulgarian split squat what what other sort of single leg variations um have you found to be good with your athletes um, so <laughs> I've been, we're playing around and again, this is right early in the stage and we, um, we're playing around with a skater squat. So that's when your knee touches the ground behind yeah. you. So it's single leg. Um, but uh, Jamie, there's also, so uh, another person who really likes his single leg work is Brendan, Brendan Appleby. And I was chatting with Brendan the other day. Brendan's currently with the, um, the men's hockey team preparing for the Olympics. But like a, a Bulgarian split squat, we, we call it a sprinter squat because um, my, my athletes get so confused with all the Eastern European names, <laughs> Romanian, this, Bulgarian, that, Estonian, whatever, uh, <laughs> Turkish, get up, you know. Um, so we call it a sprinter squat. But what you will see, and this is kind of one thing that we brought up earlier, is you walked into Propel and you looked at the athletes, you'd say, hey, everyone's kind of doing the same thing. An astute eye would pick up that our tennis players, when they do a, a, a sprinter squat, I don't care about the weight that they're lifting. I care about the range. So we've got mats on the floor that are one meter square, and we use that as a, a form so of, a form of um, measurement. And a tennis player is trying to get out to about a two meters on, this, uh, on a Bulgarian split squat. So the toe is two meters away from the toe of the front foot is two meters away from the toe of the back foot. And again, it depends on height and a few things, but that's the kind of range that we're trying to get to. And that's the big emphasis. So I don't, they'll, the tennis players are often using, you know, two and a half, five, seven and a half kgs. Um, on the flip side, the BMXs who range does not matter. You've just got the small cog that you're pedaling around on your cranks. Um, they are a much smaller range of movement. So 
while Brandon and Mike have shown the benefits of that single leg strength training, I think there's a lot of other things that you can start doing with single slash split stance movements. Um, so another example is, you know, the walking lunge where you take a step forward, knee touches the ground, then another step forward, other knee touches the ground. We will often set up, uh, we've got a nine meter truck and the athletes have to get across those nine meters in as few lunges as possible. So again, don't care about the weight, care about the range of movement, the, the length. Um, and this is specifically tennis players, squash players that we're working with. And early season or younger athletes, that's what one of the things we want to have strength at end range that's one of our, our philosophies so yes we're doing single leg strength work but the emphasis is more on getting strength at end range than pure force production yeah that, was that clear that yeah clear? it makes sense. it's very similar to how i use them and similar to one of your previous answers where you've got one of your your core lifts would be maybe something where range of motion is reduced. It's more about increasing force or um, velocity. Um, and then in your kind of assistance exercise, I call them, that's when you can, or you get your kind of range of motion or strength in range because you need that from the yep. injury prevention point of view and, and for that balance, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, I think Bulgarian split squats um, or sprint squats, um, are, they're very good for that because you get, uh, and like anyone with tight hip flexors will know it on a split squat because they'll they'll get that stretch as well. It's almost it's it, it is a strength exercise, but it's a mobility exercise at the same time. It's kind of a, a lot of bang for it for its buck in that sense. Hundred percent, and and it's interesting. We you know again talking to parents and stuff. They say, oh, you guys don't do any stretching. But when 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 I show them, hey, look at this is where we're getting our stretching from. And um, people are coming out of our program strong at that range. So they can't just get that range. They can get into that range and get out of that range. And just for the listeners there, if you had to close your eyes, I bet you could picture a, a Djokovic or a Kim Kleisters or a Serena Williams in those split positions. Um, you know, and I think it's healthy for an athlete. And there was a, a rugby player um, who captained the Reds, uh, James, um, James Hall, and he's played in the UK. I think he's recently retired. But yeah, he actually tore his hamstring. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Um, so um, he actually, I think he tore his hamstring. He ran into a, basically there was a ruck, but then he tried to stop before and kind of slid out and went into, what would you call it? Like a, a hurdler stretch. And he tore his hamstring. And there's not a criticism of the strength and conditioning coach, but that was something we thought, oh, you know, maybe if he had done a bit more of that, who's to say? Um, he would have been strong enough at that range. And as you said, for an injury prevention perspective. Yeah. Yeah. As I always say, like, uh, when you're first kind of taught exercises and, and coaching exercise, you always taught the perfect anatomical position and, and a lot of things like knees shouldn't go over toes and things like that. And then when it actually comes to sport, you're going to be a lot of times, uh, not always on purpose, but you're going to find yourselves outside of those positions. So you need to have strength in those positions. So sometimes it's good to go away from or, or push extreme ranges. Definitely. A hundred percent. Like if you look at um, Mel Sif, I don't know if anyone's ever been on the suit, the Yahoo super group, uh, super training group, um, late nineties, early two thousands. And he used to talk a lot about imperfect training and Jamie, uh, you know, this is you talking rugby specific stuff. I, I'm a big believer in infusing some strongman type of exercises into the program. I really like it um, because that keg that's got the water and it's all over the place. And I, it's, I don't see it like the balance stuff of the, you know, standing on Swiss balls kind of thing, but you force the body to react to something and it's um, not quite as dynamic as a wrestle. Um, but flipping a tire where it's a bit awkward or throwing something that's, you know, not perfectly balanced, like all our barbells are and our, you know, Pilico plates and all that kind of stuff. Um, I like that imperfect stuff because you get into a scrum and the other guy's trying to twist you and bend you and contort you and put you in all sorts of positions. You need to be able to, you know, ha be strong in those positions. So I, I agree hundred percent. Yeah, definitely some, some great examples of that. Uh, and because I guess ultimately the game is reacting and dealing with 15 players, roughly around 100 kgs who, you know, are going to move in any or, or any movement 
that you don't want essentially so you've got to be able to react to that and and kind of try and manipulate it essentially and the, the people that come out on top it, when we're talking in those contact things they're, they're the ones who'll be more successful so it's a real good point yeah. um now next question we ask all the guests on the podcast and it's what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning and of course you you can just apply that to your athletes in general it doesn't have to be specifically rugby but um okay this, this is a good one um jamie i think i think we we think if x is good 2x must be twice as good and i think that that's sort of summed up or or it's visible when we see we, we, we think in terms of maximal What's the maximum that they bench press? What's the maximum that they squat? What's the maximum that they deadlift? And I think we need to think more in terms of optimal rather than maximal. Do you need, I mean, we know that it's going to take a lot of effort to get a, you know, someone who's squatting 220 and has been for a few years to get them to 225. It's going to take a lot of effort to get that. But I don't think that that's really going to, we're not going to, see too much change and it's probably this is all one answer but i think it's also summed up you know as strength and conditioning coaches we often say stuff like well no coach has ever said that my athlete's too strong or something like that and you're like no they haven't said that directly but they might have said this person needs to improve their speed or their agility this person is mentally weak this person is um you know needs to improve their their, their, their performance under pressure um and I suppose another way of thinking about it is is I feel like we should be thinking in terms of thresholds, not maximums. So if you're an international footballer, uh, let's say a prop, and you can't squat 80 kgs, I think you're going to get crushed. Uh, I do think that. But maybe you don't have to squat 220. 150 is enough. Or I don't know what the numbers are, but I think we should be thinking a lot more in terms of minimums rather than maximums. Like, let's get them strong enough. Let's get them fit enough. Let's get them fast enough. We don't have to push, you know, um, the limits continuously in that direction. Um, so that's a theme, and and I see that with with athletes. Um, it's actually I'm not a big VBT guy and a velocity based training guy, but I do see the benefits where, at least with your athletes, you can say, "Hey, mate, okay, you." And this is an absolute real example. I had a BMX, uh, you know competed on the world level he was 84 kgs he could back squat full range he could back squat 185 kgs he didn't need to get stronger um and so we 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 used some velocity based training to help him accelerate you know a 160 or a 155 or somewhere around there um but in his mind he was like okay 185 what's the next step 187 190 let's let's chase that and he didn't need to. Uh, I thought he was strong enough. He, he didn't. Um, so that's something that I, I'd be saying. Like um, I've heard of rugby players who tear their pecs in, 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 on bench press. Like that should just never happen. Um, uh, yeah, I think th I think that's the best way. Thinking in terms of optimal, not maximal. I think we need to think of minimum thresholds, not maximum tolerated weights. Uh, would be a, would be probably the the biggest thing. I've actually got a young footballer. He was he was in this afternoon, and um, he's he's uh, under fifteen, so fourteen years old, and he deadlifts today. He deadlifted um, one fifty for five, and the technique's fine, but he he's still trying to chase more. And I'm, I feel like hey, you know, for a fifteen for a fourteen year old under fifteen, I'm happy with that. That's enough. Um, and there's a little bit of um, you know tension. I wouldn't say tension. It's uh, pushback hey come on gee can i can i do more can i do more I'm like no I'm, I'm very comfortable with that i think you are strong enough but you know what harry you need to get fitter um and and i suppose that also comes back to i think in rugby the strong guys want to get stronger and the fit guys want to get fitter and the fast guys want to get faster instead of attacking their weakness um, yeah so that, that might be another thing I suppose. So there, there's two things for you, Johnny. One is yeah. think in terms of optimal or thresholds, not maximal, and uh, attack your weaknesses. Don't always, uh, you know, chase your strengths. Yeah, I like that. I, I like the word optimal. I, I've op often used um, minimum effective dose, um, but yep. sometimes people are like, well, that's, you know, why would you want the minimum? So the optimal is the 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 volume or the the loading you need to do to adapt 
but not that it's taken away from your sport because ultimately that's what it's doing and sometimes yeah we we get too focused on the numbers um and yeah would getting stronger improve the sport and once they've got that level like you said probably not um and that that's why you know world-class powerlifters aren't great at all sports because, <laughs> because it's so exactly. specific exactly so, yeah. and, and i think there's a there's an issue here like a broader issue is by giving ourselves the term strength and conditioning coach, it becomes those are the two things that we are measuring. Um, I sometimes feel in the US it's even worse where you know people are a strength coach. That you know it's almost like, hey, I'll get you stronger, but I, I'm not even looking at your performance. And I'm quite specific in almost all my communication. I'm a, I'm a performance coach. Um, Jamie, if you sent me a rugby player and he went backwards in the gym, but he got selected and you know performed better on the field. I'll, I'll take that. In fact, I've had that conversation many times just to, you know, to the, an example being this afternoon with this kid, like stop chasing these numbers. Um, this is not going to be uh, what's going to make you a better player. You need to work on these things. I don't care if you're, if, if you can't next, you know, in four weeks time, you can't lift 150 for five and you've gone backwards there because your performance has gone better. Um, and we're going to work backwards from, from that, not, not chasing these numbers and, with our title and you know strength and conditioning or, or strength coach i think that's where athletic development coach athletic performance coach or just performance coach might i don't know might help us change our focus i'm not sure yeah definitely and i've, I've seen that at the professional level where players have been sort of almost complaining like they don't feel like they're doing enough but you kind of say but you're playing and the example i'm thinking of a guy who's playing his best rugby played in five years and he was complaining he wasn't training enough like, well, you're not you're not you're not a professional trainer you're a professional rugby player so a hundred percent and you know what's interesting is that you know um you think of a michael jordan i'm um i'm just trying to think you think of a johnny wilkinson um i can't think of a recent example but these legends they weren't the best squatters bench pressers cleaners probably not even the best vertical jumpers um a le legend of the game in rugby league in australia is jonathan thurston and doesn't even look like an athlete, but 100% you want him in your team when it's, you know, the dying moments and the, and the scores are, cl are close. Um, and, yeah, our job is to facilitate performance or improve performance, not improve gym numbers or Excel spreadsheets or whatever that is. Now, next question, um, kind of going a bit more into a specific adaptation. How do you deal with athletes who struggle to lose body fat? Hmm. Okay, this is an interesting one. Um, now, Jamie, this is very nuanced. So I'll start with my, my paradigm is, yes, I think calories in, calories out is a paradigm that works, um, but I don't think like that. It, uh, I am very heavily, um, well, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I've tried to embrace nutrition a lot. And so my first step with anyone wanting to lose body weight is to look at nutrition and, and bodybuilders have known this forever. They, you know, they say you get your abs in the kitchen and runners talk about, you can't outrun a bad diet. Um, so for me, that's the big thing. One thing I was once involved in a rugby league team, you know, sort of semi-professional early two thousands. Um, and they had a fat club. And the idea was on Saturdays, whoever was on the fat club had to do extra work. And I hated it. I hated it so much because even if that calories in calories out does work that much that we gave them extra work and they lose it, you know, lose the body fat or whatever. I think it's about education and, and developing habits, healthy, healthy habits, um, which again is what you do in the kitchen is, is, is your nutrition. Um, so from my side, I, I don't look at, you know, doing extra work necessarily. Um, we have chats and I try to help educate them. Um, I try to help show them the damage they're doing. Um, a, a very frequent chat that I have with my athletes is, hey, you know, um, that session that we do that you don't like, but we do it because, you know, it makes you better. Well, there's certain foods that you're going to have to eat or there's certain, certain foods that you're not allowed to eat. For the same reason it's going to make you better and um if you're an olympia or you know you're training for the olympics or worlds or to make whatever team you want um to make 
you're going to have to adopt that same mindset to your nutrition. Um, and so it becomes a, a conversation and an education process, but we're trying to address, address the habits. Um, so I suppose a short answer to you is if I had to say it was a rule or a, uh, I don't know, a guideline, a principle, we go 80% nutrition, 20% training. Um, and I feel if they get that right, it'll, a lot of things will take care of itself. Um, having said that, I, I think nutrition should underpin all strength and conditioning, athletic development, performance programs. I, I feel that we, we neglect that part too much kind of thinking. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm, getting, oh, I'm getting on some tangents. But to answer your question, Jamie, is to... Yeah, we, we look at get your abs in your kitchen, uh, get your abs in the kitchen. Let's address the nutrition. That's the most important part um, yeah. for my side. And, and so that's the way we chase. Yeah, I've been in different environments where they've had fat clubs or haven't had fat clubs. And I, I know it's the argument against it is, like you said, that if they're already training regularly, it, it shouldn't be, um, you know, they need to burn more calories. It's that they are burning enough calories, but it's the nutrition that's the problem that's holding them back. So why would you just add in extra stuff, which might not help their actual performance? Going back to a previous answer, is it actually helping their performance? Um, exactly. And, and if you look at it, like if, if someone, let's take an example, is 100, playing weight should be 100, they're sitting at 110. And you ask them, you know, you see these guys doing extra Ks and they're running and well, that's just extra force on your ankles, knees and hips. Um, more stress on your back. That's a whole bunch of other things that leads to problems later on. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot, a lot of nuance there, and a lot of, there are better ways that we need to do it than than create a fat club and get people to just to work harder. Yeah. Um, now this would be an interesting question. I, you mentioned before about working in the private sector, and um, I know you put some really good stuff on, on LinkedIn about this. So what are your experience working in the private sector and what advice do you give to coaches looking to be successful there? Okay. In a nutshell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. How long we got you? So, um, Jamie, I think, okay, if I can start. So my father, um, when I was growing up, he drove this seven series fancy BMW. And when I used to visit him at work, he had a personal assistant and he had this massive office and whatever. And um, he left that job. It was an international company. You know, you'd be in, this is when we were living in South Africa. So you'd be in Europe and you'd be invited on these ski trips and all this kind of stuff. And he left that and he bought, um, he bought this business and it was like a dingy little office. It, it, it was, he had to make his own tea and coffee, whatever it was. Um, it was like, he came back greasy and it, it was just like, really, to me as a 10 year old, that looked like a step backwards. I, I, said, I said, dad, why'd you do that? Like that is your job going backwards? Like what's going on? And he just said he wanted to be his own boss. And I remember, well, however old I was, 10 or 12, whatever it was, um, that just struck a chord with me. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I want to be in control. I want to be my own boss. So that was my starting point, which might be different from other people. And I, I worry in strength and conditioning that being employed is seen as the pinnacle of strength and conditioning. If you've got the logo of, um, we've mentioned Harlequins or Broncos or Reds or whatever, then that seems to be the biggest social proof that you can have. Um, and for me, I, I didn't really, uh, uh, I, I did have that at, at some stages. I'll be, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have it at some stages. Um, in, but I, I, I've had that as a route to go back to. And I, I know that there's strength and conditioning coaches who base their ego on who employs them and they also base who they want to take advice from by who, you know, who the person is employed by. And um, for the last probably 10 or 12 years, I just haven't had that. So, yeah, I think you've got to mature as a coach to be able to say, hey, I want to be independent. You've also got to let go of that ego. Like um, one, one thing that I, I had to be honest with myself and I had to say, okay, wait a second, um, do I want to be 
traveling to Wimbledon and US Open and all that kind of stuff, which was when I was at Tennis Australia, that was, you know, annual trips overseas and all that, all that. Um, or what actually makes me happy. And, and, and I realized that what makes me happy is helping people. Fundamentally, that, that's what help, you know, that's what drives me. So um, I actually didn't mind if a, if a housewife loses five kgs or this young kid makes the 15A rugby team or whatever. Um, now, that, that's not to say I'm not excited by the high performance stuff, but I get a lot of intrinsic joy and my motivation is driven by helping people. And so if you're a strength and conditioning coach and your ego is based on who you're employed by and your ego is also attached to the level of the athlete that you're working with and who sees you on TV and stuff like that, I, I think you might struggle. I really do. But I, yeah, so if you can have that honest conversation with yourself and say okay why am i actually coaching why am i doing this um it, it might give you some insight and to be fair jamie I, i'm sure this it's similar in the uk but a lot of universities sell that dream as if it is the pinnacle um so for most people who are not in the private sector or have never considered the private sector they would they probably wouldn't know what it's about um so yeah, I, th I think that's the starting point is to, to be able to have that where you are comfortable with. doesn't really matter who you're working with. You just love them helping people achieve their goals. Um, that would be the biggest, biggest sort of factor, I, I, I feel, um, because I've talked to people and they just can't, can't see it. They, well, I don't know. I think... I think that people who think that I work in the private sector because I can't get a job. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, now, just remind me what the second part of that question is. It was how can I help people in the private sector? Yeah. How, what advice you given to, to kind of be successful in it? What, how would you suggest they approach it, I guess? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, there are multiple things. I think... Oh, I, can, I can tell you a whole list of mistakes that I've made. Um, so when I was starting out, I valued money more than time. So what I mean by that is I would, Jamie, if you wanted to see me at nine o'clock and um, I don't know, someone else wanted to see me at 11 o'clock, I would think, oh, that's two appointments. Cool. I'll, I'll take both. Whereas now, if I can't compress you into that time, because I value my time so much now, if I can't compress you, I'll just say, sorry, you know, I'm not available then. I, I, I can't work then. And yes, I might lose that client or that money, but I've got my time. And so instead of sitting around or, um, you know, waiting, waiting around for that second person for an hour where I can't really get anything done because of whatever reason, um, that's one thing. So valuing time over money. Um, maybe a second one, and, and that kind of ties into it, is anything. So I, I've come up with... Um, an hourly rate for myself. And I, I did this a few years ago and it was a big change in my mindset. Um, I came up with an hourly rate and anything that could be done or outsourced for less than that, I would outsource it. So my strength is my ability to coach. That's what I've been doing for the last 22 years. Um, so me spending, I don't know, six hours on developing a logo or um, something like that, whatever it is, or accounts or whatever. I outsource it. Um, I know that I can um, flick that off and it'll be less than my hourly rate. So, so I do that. So that was a big thing. Um, third tip, if I can say, is you are going to have to think more like a businessman than a coach, which can be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's still a little bit uncomfortable for me. And what I mean by that is, so when I left full-time employment, so that was 2000, it was just after the Australian Open of 2013, um, so February, um, when I left, I had all these contracts. So I was very safe. I had um, enough money coming in that I could pay my mortgage and uh, live comfortably. And that had been a six-month process as I was planning to leave employment. Um, but I still thought like a coach. I still uh, approached business, marketing, sales, phone calls, all that kind of stuff like a coach. And it was a big thing. My wife 
was pushing me. She said, you've got to think like a businessman. You've got to think like a businessman. And I just thought, no, I'm, a, I'm just a coach in the private sector and these contracts will take care of itself. Um, and so that was a change. That was a change to be able to embrace marketing, embrace sales, embrace um, setting up stuff. And I suppose underpinning that, and if anyone's struggling with it, is to think, okay, do you back yourself as a coach? Well, Jamie, I'm sure you do and, and I do. So if I don't coach someone, they could go to a very low level personal trainer who could injure them. So it's up to me to convince them to train with me to improve their health or uh, improve their performance or whatever the case might be. And so once I think like that, and I'll be honest, I'm still, it's still not a natural thought for me, but once I think like that, then I do embrace the sales, the marketing and the business side of things a lot easier. It's not perfect, but a lot easier. So I suppose those would be my top three tips. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. I think that is something a lot of people uh, or a lot of coaches struggle with um, selling, you know, the services and stuff like that. And, and yeah, if you've got that mindset, it helps a lot. Um, and also going back to what you're saying about kind of universities selling the, the dream of working elite sport and, you're right they they very rarely show what the options are you know in the private sector which having been between rugby jobs and things you you see there is a lot out there it's just you're kind of not aware of it you're in that kind of sport bubble you think that's all there is and there are a lot of opportunities um sorry yeah. oh no i was just gonna say say just on that um so here's the thing is and this is also a mindset change for me is i've gone i used to yep listen to someone because they had the job at the the cool team or the big logo or whatever it is. Um, but if you think about this and, and this is not to put people who are employed down, I don't mean to do that. I just want to maybe open some people's eyes with this thought experiment. That coach, that strength and conditioning coach could be employed by one decision maker. So one coach rated them and employed them. When you're in the private sector, everyone who walks through your door, is judging and evaluating you every time. They, they're paying literally out of their own pockets to be with you. And so there's an element, you know, that's multiple decision makers who are coming in. Now, of course, you could argue that that coach might have a better filter and a better way of evaluating strength and conditioning coaches. Who, who's to say? But when to think that, you know, people, I've been to world champs for BMX, uh, well, I was going to go this year, so it would have been three years in a row, but two years. Um, the, the previous two years when I was in the Middle East and uh, in Belgium. Um, uh, I've been to the US Open to help a tennis player. These people are paying out of their own pockets. And so I feel like it, in the private sector, we've got to be proud of that. Like someone saying, hey, I value your time and, and your expertise so much that I'm going to pay you for every session or every week or however, you know, if it's membership or whatever, I'm going to pay for you to come travel with me. Um, I'm going to do all these kind of things. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, there's, there's a pride in there that might not be well recognized within our own profession. And maybe we should change that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, now, last question, um, which again is a, a regular on the podcast. What advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach? Right, what advice would I give to an upcoming coach? So, um, we all know that the 10,000 hour rule is not a rule. Um, you know, it wasn't even presented as a rule. If you read the original research, it was kind of like, Hey, this was, but anyway, I digress. So on that, that's what you need to be. You need to think about that as a, Oh, you don't need to. It's helpful to think of that as a paradigm, get your 10,000 hours of coaching. Um, and I'm going to, Break that down even further. So 10,000 hours of experience. And I'd, I define experience as you made. And you reflected on, on that process. So, uh, Jamie, you might be at a, at a high level football club um, and you're implementing someone else's programs. Uh, you might be running the program, but it's someone else has done all the planning. You helping load the barbells or whatever it is, uh, fill up the water bottles. That's not experience. That's that's that will expose you to some high-level training. That might help with your networking and, and so forth. 
it might you know you might be the next tab off the rank to get some experience later when an employed position comes in but make but don't kid yourself that that is experience so that doesn't contribute to your 10,000 hours um, and I'm just clarifying the 10,000 hours is, is a thought experiment not a not an exact number but if you focus on that process of gaining experience and this is where it becomes so much more helpful to again leave your ego at the door and go coach a bunch of 12 year olds in their basketball or you know go do little kickers or whatever the program is for whatever sport it is um, those skills are valuable um, in the beginning it, it's it's like a um, any young athlete when we kind of touched on this any when you're a young athlete almost anything's going to improve your ability to be more athletic um, same thing with a young coach any opportunity to coach is going to improve so if you can coach your mom or your dad if you do personal training and don't you dare thumb your nose at um, personal training you know housewives businessmen whatever students whoever that's paid work and you're getting paid to build your experience because you will one day you'll load that bench press too much or you'll load that squat or whatever and you will be exposed to whatever those consequences are and that will make you a better coach and so that, I suppose that that's one of my frustrations is, and we've seen this. I don't know if we, if you guys, I, I feel like you would be seeing this in the UK and Australia. We're getting guys who are going degree, maybe masters, maybe PhD. They get in with a high level club, but it's only to do complete their PhD. They get really into the sports science, but as soon as their PhD is finished, they've actually got very little coaching experience because they've been monitoring load or GPS or whatever it is. Um, and then they just get moved on. And now you've got a 27 year old guy who's actually got very little coaching experience and he's competing with these young guys coming through. Um, so yeah, that's my thing. Get your experience. And as a, just like a young athlete, anything's probably going to help them as a young coach, anything's going to help you. And you should just be sucking up every minute you can to gain your experience. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome advice. And are there any books or resources you recommend to, to young coaches? Um, look, I feel like I'm a bit old school with this, but I think every coach should at least have science and practice of strength training by Zatsioski and, yeah. and super training by SIF uh, and whether it's Furkoshkansky or, or just SIF or whatever. I, I, I like those two because I feel in our profession, we get caught on, on trends and, um, and fads, but I don't know anyone who's read those and it took me, I think it was, I can't remember if I completed super training on the third attempt. I think I failed three times. And on the fourth time I read it cover to cover and it doesn't mean I understood it cover to cover. I just, but you start to recognize, Oh, wait a second. So that's just this thing um, that Sif reported in his book on super training, which the research was done actually in the sixties. That's just been repackaged. Yeah. And I find people who base it on that foundation don't sway as much with the, with the latest things that are being reinvented and reinvented and, and so forth and repackaged i feel like the coaches who have those two books somewhere in their library that they have referenced and read through and um they're just a little bit more grounded a little bit more stick with the fundamentals a little bit um more secure in their knowledge i, I think yeah um, both, both great books boring answer i apologize but it, it, it's it's what i recommend all my interns eventually get yeah, no, both both great books, and I think, yeah, obviously very hard to to read the, the Mel Sif Super Training, but um, I think it's one that you can either refer back to, or if you do manage to read through it, I think every couple of years, if you read through it, you'll like say those things that have maybe been announced as new, you'll actually realise we're already in there. But I always think it's good to to reread those books or any books, any books that you found helpful because your development over the years you, you take different things every time you read it um so it's um, definitely exactly and if, you, if you've applied like uh, let's take something like plyometrics and you know sif talks about it being power metrics and all that kind of stuff and you just go back it just makes sense each time you go back over that situation uh, you know that segment or that chapter um and there's still a lot of things that i apply from both of them um that have just you know, I'm sure a lot of people, your listeners would know the Lindy effect, that which has been around for a long time, will be around for a long time. And um, I just think that those two books are filled with Lindy stuff. And if you had to have 
I don't know, 80, 90, 95% of your program based on the information presented in those books, you could improve the athleticism of 99.9% of the population. And, you know, that's a pretty good, good place to be in. Yeah. Okay, last question is uh, where can people learn more about you? Well, um, so I've got a blog, propelperform.com. Um, and that's where I post some thoughts. Um, and then we, uh, Propel Perform is on, I think, Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, Instagram of the big three. Uh, same thing, Propel Perform, P-R-O-P-E-L Perform. And then on Twitter and LinkedIn, Grant, uh, uh, at Grant underscore Jenkins is the Twitter stuff. Um, and I post some thoughts there. <laughs> some of them people like, some of them not so much. But um, <laughs> no, sometimes it's there for, for my own... Um, I actually talked to Joseph Coyne about this the other a while back. Um, sometimes I post things there to to get a reaction to see because I want to break my own echo chamber, and um, by posting something that I might I might not agree with, I get to find out what other people's opinions or thought processes are behind it. Um, having said that, I think about sixty percent of the replies have nothing to do with the original meaning of the tweet. So I might have to do some self-reflection and see if the issue's on my side or on their side. <laughs> but um, yeah, propelperform.com and uh, find us on Twitter, I guess. Yeah, and of course, we'll share all those those links in the show notes. I th- it's interesting what you just said. Um, I, th- I think it's important to do that, kind of challenge your own, own beliefs. I think sometimes a lot of the education in, in this industry, it's, it's very samey. So it's it's... I think it's good to seek out things that might not necessarily contradict, but be, you know, different to your, to your sort of thinking and kind of challenge what you're doing. Um, Cause that's, that's what you don't want to get stuck in your, in your ways. Um, you've always got to try and improve it. Yeah. Jamie, it's funny, isn't it? Like I think of a lot of strength and conditioning coaches and in many respects, we're meant to be critical thinkers. You know, we base our information on science and what have you. I think we're meant to be, um, I don't know, strong personalities or whatever. And yet there's this massive fear and it's kind of a theme actually in this talk about fear of um, marketing and sales, fear of being um, whispered behind our backs because we're selling out or whatever the case might be. Um, Fear of, um, yeah, I I sometimes feel we're a a profession of very fragile egos. Fear fear of not working for the right team, you know. there's this hierarchy. I mean, we, we can talk about, uh, if uh, I'm guessing again, UK would parallel Australia here, but in Australia, the, the football codes are held in the highest esteem, um, working with, ath- uh, elite athletes over development. And that's seen as, as higher. Um, there's a hierarchical between a uh, system between working with male athletes over female athletes. And I think, why are you basing your ego on that? Like, I traveled with a, um, a Slovakian tennis player, or a Slovakian born tennis player. Um, that was awesome. Like we, we went to Wimbledon together. We, you know, we traveled around. Like um, I, I didn't feel like I was a lesser coach because I was working with a female athlete. Um, but we, we have these, this, this hierarchy and our, our egos are based on, are we working with a men's elite football team? Cause if not, then we below those people and you know i don't know that's a tangent i'll get off my soapbox <laughs> but um yeah i i do sometimes get frustrated when i see these kind of things and i'm all for let's break these echo chambers and let's let's go express stuff and, and find out things and challenge ourselves and get out of comfort zones and all that kind of stuff that's what we're asking people every day to do we should be doing it ourselves yeah yeah that's awesome stuff um yeah just to finish up brian it's been great great talking to you uh, we're sort of i think we're on or approaching the hour mark and it's it's flown by um tons that we've we've delved into and, and got some really good info out there for the for the listeners so thank you for that and thanks for sharing your time with us and all the best Tammy, absolute pleasure and uh hope you got out what you wanted from this and hopefully we'll stay in touch yeah definitely yeah, some great stuff there, Grant. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and all the best for the future. Uh, in the meantime, guys, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, whatever you use for your podcasts. And of course, give us a five-star review. Check us out at our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and of course, the website, rugbyrenegade.com. 
And something that we're working on to get out in the next few weeks is a free video training which will give you insights into how we get results for rugby players, improve their performance. So whether you're a coach or an athlete, you'll find this beneficial. I hope you single out what the most important things you need to work on with your players or for yourself. Uh, and the best way is to get over to our Instagram and there's a link in the bio to sign up to the mailing list uh, and you'll get um, first updates of when it's released and more information about it. So definitely worth checking out. It's going to be um, something we're really excited about working on. In the meantime, guys, uh, more podcasts are on the way, so stay tuned. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.